Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhivkova. Dear Zeitgeist 19 listener, in today's engaging episode, we have the pleasure of chatting with the fascinating Tega Brain, an artist, environmental engineer, and educator from Australia, who beautifully intertwines art, technology, and ecology. We delve into her transformative journey, explore how she uses AI and machine learning in her unique art projects, and navigate through the ethical concerns associated with technology. Hey Tega, uh, you know in today's world where AI and technology are such hot topics, your unique path truly stands out. It's fascinating how you've journeyed from being an environmental engineer to becoming an interdisciplinary artist and educator. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about uh, more about this transformation. Could you share with us a bit about your journey? What sparked this change and how has your original background in engineering continued to shape and influence the work you're doing now? Yeah, so I originally trained and worked in environmental engineering for a number of years. Um, environmental engineering, it's a discipline that's, you know, it's concerned with how societies interface with the environment or the non-human. So like, other living, non-living things. Um, and yet, and so it's like, you know, a critical kind of uh, discipline, especially at the moment when we're facing so many kind of ecological challenges. And yet um, as a sort of junior consultant, junior engineer, I, as I experienced it, there wasn't a lot of space in what I was doing to consider um, the, the environmental engineering as uh, something that is informed by culture and something that's shaped by social and economic forces. Um, my job was very much framed in technical terms, you know, in the question of like how, so like how do we manage stormwater or water rather than why are we doing it this way and what kind of values are being sort of built into our infrastructures uh, and definitely not a lot of space for sort of speculation so like how could we do things differently that what if question um there's also sort of a framing in that's very prevalent in engineering about it as a problem solving endeavor um and so I really wanted to find and think about the work I was doing but in a much more kind of interdisciplinary way I wanted to be able to like ask critical questions around like why we were building the world the way we were building it was there a way to sort of give more space or give more agency to environments and to other species? Uh, was there other, other ways to think about environments where it wasn't just framed as sort of a re resource to be exploited or extracted? Could we think about environments and other species as having kind of intrinsic value or having intelligence or giving them more agency in the systems we designed? And so, you know, I was sort of full of these questions and frustrations and, um, it was around 2008 and so um it was the global economic <laughs> crisis and pretty much all the like uh young engineers in my company then got laid off because you know all the construction projects stopped and so i found myself 
without a job and I had all this sort of time in my hands and so I went and did an MFA. I went to art school and I got really lucky and the program I was in was really focused on programming and software and interaction and so I discovered that all these technical skills I had could be applied in a completely different context in a completely different way to you know make make experiences and artwork and so I started working in that way and I started really engaging with some of these questions that had really haunted me in engineering but looking at them in the context of artworks and sort of making experimental systems that malfunctioned and then thinking about why we would call a system functional or not functioning you know what is it what does that tell us about our expectations about the world and our sort of the hierarchy of all of us living together within it um and so yeah a lot of my work now um is still concerned with questions of like how we uh interact with and how we design the politics of our of the multi-species world we're in but I do it very much from a much more kind of speculative and experimental way, right? So I'm really interested in, yeah, the politics of infrastructures, you know, can we design infrastructures based on mutualism or can we design systems that draw on sort of the intelligence of other species and environments as opposed to just sort of like statistical or artificial modes of intelligence, right? So my work is very much now forms these sort of like systems experiments. Thank you, Tega, for walking us through your artistic practice and earlier influence. Um, I would like to ask you next, um, in what ways do you think artificial intelligence and machine learning are transforming the digital art landscape? Um, and what opportunities do these technologies present for artists? Yes, well, I mean, this is a huge question. It's a huge question that keeps evolving. Um, there's obviously been a lot of interest and experimentation with artificial intelligence by artists um, over the past decade. Um, you know, in my own work, I started working with some of these technologies, uh, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, and then, you know, it keeps changing, right? So it's becoming, obviously, as, as these technologies are becoming more commercial and coming to market, they're becoming sort of uh, more straightforward to implement, right? We've gone from a situation where uh, you'd need to be like extremely skilled to sort of implement a machine learning model or something in your work, or you'd need to be collaborating with a computer scientist, which is often the case too, to now, right? Now we you can just fire up a large language model in your browser and away it goes. Um, and the, the, you know, ways of using these systems has become much more sort of frictionless and uh straightforward i think that comes at a cost if you like or that definitely like changes things in that um the difficulty part of the difficulty in implementing it you know five seven years ago meant you really were thinking about what you would like what system you were working with where the data was coming from right you had to make a lot more decisions in the process of working with these technologies now for example with the you know obviously the the language models and the image generation tools that are sort of readily available in one's browser 
it's it's you're not forced to like think through those decisions such as oh what data sets am I using um where's this coming from what servers is it running on like what country are those servers in like none of these questions are obvious or in your face when you're working with these systems right it's just a click of a button and off we go and so I think that's uh um that's a shame, right? That's uh, something that we should all be considering and thinking about really carefully because, you know, these these systems aren't just like, haven't just appeared magically from the cloud, if you like. Um, they are the result of a lot of decisions. They are um, coming to us through uh, the sort of business model of Silicon Valley and, and the internet. Um, and I think that means that, yeah, all of those decisions are being made by someone somewhere. It's just not completely obvious who and, and what they are, right? So, I mean, um, I think that's something we all need to be talking about. Um, it's, I think it's, there's some very troubling aspects of the sort of way that it's impossible to audit where the data is coming from that's sort of underlying a lot of these um, language models and image generation tools. Um, obviously, the data has come from, you know, the public internet, uh, which then also brings up a lot of issues around authorship, um, uh, paying people for their work and their contribution. These, the way that AI is now being rolled out is meaning a huge concentration in power and in um, who is gaining economically from these tools, right? You can very easily imagine that a year from now, open AI is going to charge an expensive subscription to potentially use their tools or if you want to use them sort of at a scale that's useful you know um and that's I think that's definitely where we're heading is, is this sort of subscription-based model to to machine learning uh and so that's a problem right because I would be I very much doubt they have a plan to actually like pay people who've contributed the data to these systems for their contributions right that uh, you know a lot of engineers claim oh that's even an impossible task we can't sort of identify like which data is being used when you query one of these systems, right? So lots and lots of challenges there, I think. Um, I guess your question about what the opportunities are though, um, I mean, I think they do these, these tools and these tools like language models and image generation platforms um, do provide interesting new ways of prototyping, speculating, right? Um, I think most, I think many people have now been sort of using AI tools to um, write in different ways, right? So like um, experimenting with texts and using AI to sort of generate them in different styles. So it's this sort of collaborative relationship where, you know, you're using these tools to kind of surprise you or give you results that maybe you wouldn't necessarily come to yourself and then you take them and edit them and then it's this sort of cyclical interesting um process so i think that's really exciting again like um you know there's long histories of generative art where artists have been using generative practices uh generative tools like this in these ways and so i mean i think we're seeing this sort of enter the mainstream a little bit more now um but again i think it's also worth worth just keeping in mind the limitations of this in in that like yeah these systems can delight you and surprise you with the the results they give you, but what they're going to generate is going to be always within the bounds of the data sets that have that they've been trained with, right? So it's impossible for 
a machine learning system to like you know dream up an image or give you an image or a visual result that's that's not a pattern in their existing data right and so in terms of art being a space for generating like new or sort of um novel or yeah like um never seen before imagery I mean I think there's a big uh contradiction there or challenge there in that like that's not something the machine learning can do (laughs) so there always has to be this sort of like human hand or human decision making in that process I think that's really insightful Tega Um, You know, we are witnessing an exciting time in the world of art as AI and machine learning are increasingly used to create extraordinary experiences. They not only enhance the aesthetic value, but also allow for deep thought-provoking interpretations. With that backdrop, I'm curious, have there been any specific projects or installations where you've used AI or machine learning, perhaps to address environmental concerns or to curate a unique artistic experience? We would love to hear about the marriage of art and advanced tech in your work. I've used um, some sort of very basic machine learning in a couple of different works um, that explore it from this a question of environment. Um, so for the past few years, I've been exploring this question of like what, um, how does AI and machine learning technologies change the way we see environments, change the way we manage them? Like, you know, what is what does that look like? What are some of the questions we should be asking as um, as they infiltrate um, processes of environmental management? And this is absolutely happening, right? So you can imagine like um, machine learning being deployed to sort of like analyze satellite imagery or um, make decisions about or yeah inform decisions based on like what that satellite imagery is is showing um so it's it's definitely um that is definitely a place where it's happening uh or where it's being used um and so I was very got very interested in that um a few years ago and some of the works where I've experimented with it so I've made a project called deep swamp and it's a large installation that consists of um, a series of wetland environments. So these are sort of like living, growing wetlands in the gallery. Um, but each is sort of being managed by an, an AI agent, right? Um, so uh, I trained a simple sort of machine learning system on different um, data sets that showed different representations of environments. So one data set was like all of the wetland images that um, were on Flickr, right, tagged wetlands. So these are sort of like images people had taken of wetlands. And um, that particular system is trying to optimise its environment so the AI is able to like, um, you know, change water levels, change nutrient levels, change lighting levels, lighting colours and whatnot to try to recreate what it thinks a wetland is and it understands a wetland from those Flickr photos. Another one of the systems, the data set was um, images of landscape painting from the history of Western art. So its understanding of the environment was coming from that sort of like um, that Western art history. Um, it loved to sort of implement like, you know, rainbow gradients and sunsets and things like that. 
And then the last one, its data set had can only contain images of environments that also had people and crowds in them. So its understanding of the environment was very much one where the human was in the frame and that would sort of reinforce settings when there was an audience. So it was kind of optimised for attention. And so like that work was very much trying to draw attention to the fact that, you know, all data sets come from somewhere that that, you know, and this is a this has been well discussed now, the sort of like bias of data sets and the fact that they are, have very specific contexts. Um, and even in the context of like massive environmental data sets, this is still the case, right? There isn't this sort of like one objective view of an environment. That's that's a sort of dream that that um, an impossible dream, but it is a long running one that, you know, you can trace back from the, you know, very early days of AI research, this idea of like objective vision and then objective vision feeding into this idea of like, oh, we can, we can depoliticize decision-making. We'll be able to see the whole world and make completely um, perfect decisions about how to manage it, right? That won't be political because we've got this perfect, you know, simulation, you know, so this is like the dream and obviously like, Every time you, there's so many examples of trying to implement this or trying to work towards this and you're like, oh, no, data is specific and and decisions are always political. So, um, yeah, so really trying to sort of expand that conversation. Um, I've also used uh, sort of GANs and like generative image technologies um, for kind of environmental speculation. So one of my work Sunder, which is a collaboration between a couple of other artists, Julian Oliver and Bank Sojin. Um, it we applied a GAN to, we trained a GAN on um, Landsat satellite imagery. So Landsat being the you know huge open source satellite image data set. Um, and then our system generated sort of fictional satellite image tiles based on that, that training data. And then we would interpret those um, those fictional landscapes as sort of geoengineering proposals. And the work kind of is playing with this idea of, well, what if um, an AI was used to sort of manage environments or come up with propositions um, for, for environmental management, right? Again, exploring this long running sort of imaginary we have for AI as, as being, you know, a, the ultimate decision maker or a less political decision maker than sort of a human human subjects. Um, you know, what does an AI environmental manager look like and what are the sort of problems with that, right? So, I mean, that's, again, both of those works, this idea of like outsourcing decision making to AI are drawing on really like, I think, commonplace imaginaries for artificial intelligence. We see this in like a lot of films and culture widely, right? Um, and so the third work I'll just quickly mention sort of turns this on its head. I was really like, well, what are other ways to think about intelligence? You know, surely we can think of, surely there are other ways to think about intelligence that go beyond just this idea of machines as the decision makers. <laughs> and one of my more recent projects is a project called Solar Protocol. And it's a um, network of solar powered servers. So we basically set up a small system, a solar system that runs a computer that serves a website. Um, and there's a network of these that we sent out to different volunteers around the world. And so our network collaboratively, collectively, these servers um, make the make a website available, which you can go to at solarprotocol.net. 
And but the website gets served from whichever server is in the most sunshine, right? So they're all solar powered, so we know how much sun is hitting each server. And so essentially, this network is programmed by the sun, right? Every, every time you visit the website, the system is like, which server is in the most sunshine? And it will send you from that server because it's also generating the most energy, of course. And so this kind of system is actually turning that on its head, right? We see I'm using the environment to program a machine. It's sort of trying to explore this idea of environmental intelligence or natural intelligence where decision-making is outsourced to the environment rather than to a machine or a statistical model. Thanks, Tega. Uh, going back to environmental management, as a digital artist, how do you strike a balance between creativity and sustainability, particularly in terms of resource consumption? I'm glad you asked me this question. I think that balance is challenging for all of us, right? Um, but particularly in the environmental arts where, um, you know, as an artist, you kind, you're often trying to make models or examples or explore how else the world could be, right? And so there's sort of um, a belief in our capacity to change and transform. <laughs> and yet the the system and the sort of art space is very resource heavy. There's an expectation that you fly around the world and do a lot of um, sort of remote work. Um, often big installations are really materials heavy. I mean, I think well, this is stuff that we, these are issues we all need to be talking about and trying to um, push back again and transform the way we're working. Um, so that's something that I think about a lot. Um, just some of the sort of, of small ways that I have been trying to improve my own practice in terms of its impact is, you know, I think the um, pandemic demonstrated that it is possible to do a lot of work remotely, <laughs> for better or worse. I know it's not as enjoyable, but um, so that's been helpful um, in terms of like reducing some of the travel that's kind of expected. Um, so I do do a lot of kind of remote installs if it's possible these days. Um, uh, so that's one way. And then another way is, you know, some of my installations, you know, they require a lot of electronics or a lot of screens or, you know, and, and we, we all, um, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are aware of the sort of material impacts of computing. Um, and so not all, but some of my installations, we, we put in our sort of technology writers that we're really happy to use e-waste, like it doesn't have to be new equipment. Um, yeah, and that, that we're, we're also trying to shift our aesthetic. And when I say our, I'm, I mean, a lot of my projects are kind of collaborations and one of my longtime collaborators is Sam Levine. And so, for example, one of our works, Synthetic Messenger, consists of this botnet. And so it consists of like 30 different screens or 50 different screens with bots going about um, some automated activity. They click on a lot of, they click on ads um, that run alongside climate news stories to try to inflate the value of those news stories. So it's sort of a media project. And so we, with that installation, we always try to use recycled or e-waste screens, right? And the, the work then uses that aesthetic of like all kinds of different devices um, uh, in, in those exhibitions of that piece. So I think there's lots of ways one can 
can try to reduce um, impacts. But yeah, it's still a massive challenge. And you know, I think there's this disconnect between expectations of curators and institutions and then the aspirations of the artists where, you know, you're there, there still is this expectation that you, you know, you give artist talks in person and that you come to the opening and that um, I don't think we have found good ways to kind of collaborate remotely um, that can kind of stand up to in-person interactions. So yeah, it's a challenge. Thanks for sharing that, Tega. It's really eye-opening. Uh, in recent times, we've seen an intensifying dialogue around ethics and responsibility in technology, especially as AI and similar technologies become an integral part of our lives. Uh, your work frequently explores the intricate dance between humans and technology. Can you share with us how you navigate these ethical waters uh, when you blend AI and other emerging technologies into your art? What are some challenges you usually face and how do you uh, maneuver through them? The way that I've incorporated AI into my work has been where we are, myself and collaborators on projects and my team are sort of uh, collecting the data and often trying to implement it ourselves. Um, so we have, we're very, I'm always really thinking about do I know where the data comes from? Being very cogent of that, right? Um, and that's difficult, right? So like the deep swamp image recognition wetland project I spoke about earlier, you know, that that was using a sort of off-the-shelf machine vision system called TensorFlow, which has been trained on ImageNet, which is a huge, you know, but industry standard um, image database. Uh, and there has been a lot of writing on the sort of like problematic ways that that data set was produced, right? Um, you know, it's it's tag, the tags and classifications in that data set have been very problematic and written about. They are that work is done by really low paid labor <laughs> around the world. Um, so, but that's the case with most machine learning, right? It's it's. They, these technologies are not neutral and they've come from very particular geopolitical and labour conditions. Um, but for me, it's really important to, um, to be aware of that and to acknowledge that in the work and then also talk about that when, when you share the work, right? Um, and I think this is one of the massive problems with all the open AI tools, and I've mentioned this already, is that you know there's there's no there's very little information about the the data sets behind them. So I think that's a that's a real ethical challenge. Um, you know, so far I haven't really done work with with tools like that. Um, so I think that's something that um, one would have to talk about in <laughs> you know in the in the production of the work. Um, if if that yeah if that's if you choose to use them and work with them. Um, obviously, there's a lot of, like, um, criticism of these tools and, you know, folks like Emily Bender, who's done a lot of, like, sort of criticism of large language models, you know, her answer to, like, well, how do you address this problem or how how large should language models be let be? And her answer is, oh, well, they should be only as large as the documentation process of the data lets them be, right? So 
there is this sort of discussion around like maybe that's the limitation there. If you can't sort of list where all the data came from, well, then it's too big. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's one answer. Let me see. How do you address ethical concerns when incorporating AI into your art practice? What challenges do you typically encounter? How do you overcome them? Um, I mean, I think the other big challenge here is that, that again, should be discussed way more, right, is energy consumption. We are, whether we like it or not, in the midst of a climate crisis um, that, you know, is long running and accelerating and despite all of the actions and activists and fantastic work in drawing attention to this and trying to get the transition happening faster, it's the climate crisis is still accelerating at a really terrifying pace um, and it's going to impact, you know, it is impacting so many of our lives and will continue to do so over the coming decades. And so the questions, questions of, you know, what, what are the energy impacts and the climate impacts of the technologies we're using should be front and centre to, I think, all of our work, whether we're artists or, you know, whatever discipline you're working in. Um, and when we're talking about AI, we're talking about really energy intensive technologies. Um, so that is something that I consider a lot. And the work I mentioned, the solar protocol, which explores automation by the environment, by the sun, by sol like solar powered systems, um, I think demonstrates that decision making can be automated in different ways that it doesn't that the our um, we the like we're not limited to automating decision making in our machines via heavy data heavy energy heavy simulations right which is the sort of machine learning model um there are a lot of other ways to produce automation and to um build our systems right what does it look like if we rely on the environment itself to sort of um, automate how our infrastructures work, I mean, that's a much sort of lighter weight way to go about things. It also means that our technologies are sort of regulated or steered by the environment itself. And so it, it's a way of also potentially staying within planetary limits rather than relying on huge amounts of energy, often fossil energy, which is, you know, photosynthesis of the past to, to run our systems. So, yeah, um, I know it's a kind of um, complicated ending to our conversation, but I do think, I do think we all need to be, be really grappling with the climate impacts of our work. You know, the Solar Protocol Project as I've mentioned, is about like automating a machine with environmental data and, and the environment itself. Um, but in building it, we've also, you know, built a sort of uh, alternative network, right? It's like a, a distributed data center, if you like, you know, in that there are sort of solar servers around the world and they can all host web material and projects and, and websites. And so as a result of that, you know, we have been working on a exhibition that just launched on the platform last week. Um, so I just want to mention that. And the exhibition is called Sun Thinking. And 
it consists of projects and texts that explore some of the issues of the project, which is like, what does low carbon digital culture look like? How could we create a platform where that could be explored in, you know, in an experimental and like let artists sort of publish and, and put work um, on, online in a way that maybe doesn't rely on energy intensive data centers um, or the, the sort of infrastructural status quo. And so just want to give a shout out to that work because there's some really fantastic projects and writing that we've just sort of published for the first time using our very own kind of virtual solar powered artist run space, which is how we're thinking of, of it. Tega, I can't tell you how inspiring this conversation has been. It's been a joy to delve into the intersection of technology, art, and ethics with you. And we're incredibly grateful, and we look forward to seeing where your remarkable work takes you next. Thank you, Tega. Thank you.